listening to the Alan Carter Show on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Thank you so much for spending some time with us this hour. Alberta bound, Alberta bound. It's good to be Alberta bound. Love that old Gordon Lightfoot chestnut. And why are we talking about Alberta to begin this program? It's budget day in Alberta. And you say to yourself, Alan, I don't live in Alberta. Thank you very much. Well, there are a lot of lessons, I think, that the Ford government could learn from the way that the conservative government or the blue government in uh, Alberta, the Jason Kenney government, is handling its first budget. Here's a little bit of a background, a little scene setter for you. Give you a sense of why this is important in Alberta and what lessons Ontario can learn from it. Let me be clear. This will be a challenging budget. It will not be easy. Some programs will be asked to do more with less. Some ineffective programs will be eliminated altogether. That is Jason Kenney speaking in a province-wide address, predicting pain. Pain is on the way. No way, two ways about it. Now, obviously, Ontario and Alberta, different provinces, different voting bloc. But look at how different that is from the way that Vic Fideli approached his first budget, the way that the Ford government approached its first budget, which has been, by and large, an absolute disaster. And I don't take issue with the actual policies in the budget. That's not my job. My job is to tell you about, you know, what's really going on behind the scenes. And what governments do when they're effective is they communicate their priorities to people before they actually do anything. They, basically, what you do is you say, hey, you know what, we're going to do something. And you say, well, that, now we did that. And then you hold another press conference and say, that thing that we said we were going to do? We did it yesterday. We did it. And you just keep doing that again and again because you need to reinforce these things. But instead, Ontario decided that, no, well, we're, no, there's no cuts. No, it's a good news budget. And then, of course, trickle, trickle, trickle out of Mr. Fideli's budget were indeed cuts. And people did not take that well. That's why Mr. Fideli has been unceremoniously dumped as finance minister. Here's a bit more background on the Alberta budget. The budget is the first under the United Conservative government. In a TV address last night, Premier Jason Kenney said it won't be an easy budget, but it's necessary to end deficits and spiraling debt. So who or what will be hit? The Premier said health and education funding will not be reduced. The overall size of government will shrink, mainly through attrition. Some capital projects will be delayed or scaled back, while inefficient programs will get less money or may be scrapped. Alberta's debt is approaching $60 billion. It's on track to hit $96 billion by 2023. Ken Trimble, the Canadian Press, Edmonton. Oh, Alberta, you're so cute with your little tiny debt. Aren't you adorable? Oh, you're approaching 100? Oh, that's nice. Anybody want to know what the current Ontario debt is? Anybody? Alberta freaking out because their debt is in the 60s. Ontario debt currently, $348.79 billion. Merry Christmas. Let's go to City Hall and Presto. Presto is going to be top of mind today at the TTC board meeting. Board members there are discussing the 34 recommendations after a scathing Auditor General's report 
outlining ongoing problems with the rollout of those Presto machines. And remember that Presto was brought to you by the former Liberal government that decided, no, we need to create our own system. Can't buy technology off the shelf, got to do this all on our own, and we've poured millions and millions into it. Keep in mind also that on Wednesday, the TTC announced it's going to stop the sale of tickets and tokens at the end of November. Essentially, you're going to have to use the Presto machine. And already the TTC says that because of the faulty devices, which can fail for any number of reasons, including too many coins, you just put too much money in it, stops taking any more money. Well, the TTC figures $3.4 million is what it lost last year. And this new report says could be higher. Could be more than that. Ben Spur is the transportation reporter with the Toronto Star. Always great to have him on the program. Hi, Ben. Hi, thanks for having me. What's going to happen at this TTC uh, meeting today? Well, I think they'll just uh, kind of go over this uh, Auditor General's report, and, and generally uh, when an, the Auditor General uh, issues a report, the agency she's writing about, uh, you know, accepts all the recommendations and, and uh, promises to move forward. But I think what's uh, the, the tricky thing here, as you mentioned, the Presto system is a uh, provincially owned uh, system, and it's on the, the TTC, which is city-owned. So this Auditor General's report doesn't really it doesn't affect the province. It doesn't uh, make the provincial transit agency that owns Presto do anything. So it's a bit of a, a kind of a, a gap there, right, where the, the province is in charge of this thing, and um, the, the TTC will be talking about it today, but that doesn't necessarily affect what the province does. Right, so as much gnashing of teeth and rending of clothing as there is, it's not going to do anything because they don't have the power to influence Metrolinx. Yeah, I mean, uh, to be fair, Metrolink says that they, uh, you know, they've read this report, of course, and that they, they agree that uh, they could do better and they'll work towards improving the system. So where are we in terms of the rollout? For those who don't use the system, don't use Presto, because there are some things that it does and some things that it doesn't do in terms of being able to load it with a credit card, so on and so forth. If you don't use Presto, give us a sense, Ben, how it's working right now. Well, so uh, it's pretty much rolled out against uh, um, across most of the, the TTC system. And in theory, you should be able to, to buy a Presto card at uh, the vending machines that they have out there. They're now sold in um, Shoppers Drug Mart locations as well. And you should be able to buy one of those and, and tap on a, uh, on a bus on a streetcar at a subway station. Um, and as you, as you note, uh, that's pretty much going to be the only way that you can uh, ride the TTC uh, pretty soon. The TTC is going to stop selling tickets and tokens at the end of November, but they haven't uh, fixed a firm date yet for when they'll actually stop accepting them. So there will be a kind of a, a delay there where the tickets and tokens won't be sold, but um, you can still use them. But uh, sometime pretty soon, the TTC says that they'll, they'll make the switch. So they're advising people who may be hoarding uh, tokens or tickets to, uh, to start uh, getting rid of them. Ben, here in Toronto, we love to compare ourselves to other major cities to see where we are. And every time we talk about Presto in our morning editorial meeting at Global News, somebody says, well, in New York, you can get on the subway with your cell phone or something like that. Mm -hmm. Why is it that we don't have the kind of technology and the kind of developments and ease of access that other major centers seem to have? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's a very big question. Um, the, we were supposed to, uh, when the TDC 
and Presto signed this deal back in 2012, we were supposed to get a system that would eventually uh, let us pay with uh, just a tap of a credit or debit card and, and not have to buy a special Presto card. The, the, they say that that is still in the works. Uh, Metrolinx is promising to institute that, but we haven't got there yet. Um, yeah, and I think you know a lot of people said that uh, the TDC should have uh, and Metrolinx should have gone with um, a kind of off-the-shelf uh, fare system that is used in London or Hong Kong or something like that. It's a little bit tricky because the, the GTA is, is a different kind of transit system. You know, it has its idiosyncrasies in terms of the way that streetcars and buses and, and subways all kind of interact. And ideally, uh, Presto is going to be used uh, across uh, transit agencies across the GTA. So you could kind of see why there'd be a need for a specific, uh, you know, a kind of Toronto-specific um, fare card here. But uh, yeah, it certainly hasn't delivered on all of the promises that uh, it was supposed to. Last question on this. Where is Met- Metro links uh, in terms of coming in for the TTC. I know they say they've read it and they've accepted the report and all of that, but at the end of the day, as you point out, it comes down to Metro links and them pushing this through. Yeah, and I think what's in the Auditor General's report, some of the findings are, are pretty, um, you know, they, the Metrolink says that they're working well with the TTC, but the Auditor General pointed out that seven years after they signed this contract to Institute Presto, they still haven't um, agreed on what they call service level agreements. So they haven't agreed on, like, measures of, of um, metrics that they should be used to uh, actually determine how well the system is working. So they don't even have an agreed-upon system between the TTC and Metrolinks to how to determine whether uh, Presto readers are, are functioning in it as well as they should. So, um, you know, that's kind of, uh, it, it's pretty amazing that this far in, um, that the, the, the two sides are still kind of uh, not, not reached agreement on some fundamental things. Yeah, no kidding. Ben Spur is a transportation reporter for the Toronto Star and is covering the TTC meeting today, where they will be discussing the ongoing problems with the Presto Fair system. Thanks so much, Ben. Appreciate you being Thanks on the so. program. Yeah, always. Isn't that incredible? I mean, we could have had this system up and running a long time ago, and I think everyone agrees on that. And now we just keep going forward and pouring more money and more money. And then this incredible story of that a number of the Preston machines just stop accepting cash because there's too many coins in there. It's just so I think Ben probably should stop covering the the meeting and just go and start cleaning out some fair machines that would be more useful that would be useful journalism that's gonzo journalism is what that is should ontario continue to have separate school boards Should we continue to fund Catholic education? That thorny issue has been politically disastrous for candidates in elections past. Toronto Mayor John Tory, who, as you recall, was leader of the PCs in 2007, lost badly as the campaign became dominated by a discussion of his plan to extend public funding to Ontario faith-based schools. A recent Ipsos poll found that 56% of Ontarians agree with merging the two systems into one, while 26% were in favor of continued funding for Catholic schools. Another 18 would extend funding to all faith-based schools. Alvin Tejo is one of the candidates seeking to become the next leader of the Ontario Liberal Party, and he has now promised if he becomes leader, he will do exactly what 56% of uh, of us say we want, which is namely to merge those systems. 
and eliminate special funding for Catholic schools. Alvin joins me on the line. Hi, Alvin. Hi, Alan. Thanks for having me. This is going to get you attention, but it also could potentially just mean that you are unelectable. <laughs> I, don't, I don't believe so, Alan. I think as the poll that you cited uh, says that a majority of Ontarians want this to happen, and another quarter of Ontarians want to make sure that we're expanding access to religious education. So what our plan does is exactly that. I've got three kids in the Catholic system myself. I grew up in the Catholic system myself. I want to take the best of both worlds. I want to make sure that all our students have the opportunity to learn together. We shouldn't be separating them by religion. We should be including everyone together in you know, the classrooms that we have, in the society that we have, and give those opportunities for, for students who want to learn about religion or other religions in high school so that they have that option as well. That's so, what we're trying to do. We're trying to make an inclusive society, not an exclusive society. Let me understand then what you're proposing. You're proposing a merging of all school boards into one single school board? One English language school board and one French language school board. So no division by religion. And what happens to all of those Catholic schools? They become Ontario public schools? Exactly. We're not closing any public schools. And in fact, this will help us uh, in many regions of the province, especially in rural areas where, you know, they have not enough students in their Catholic school and not enough students in their public school, they can pull those resources together. Those students can now take a calculus course in grade 12 because they have the numbers to do that. Now, We're Alvin... able to do that right now. Yep. Alvin, a lot of people will perhaps agree with that, but there is a thorny issue of a constitutional amendment <laughs> which is required to make this happen, and I just say... Two things to you, Meach Lake and Charlottetown, and go ahead and go well, get your constitutional <laughs> amendment. Well, absolutely, Alan. That's a, that's a very interesting thing people like to bring up, and I will give you three perfect examples. Manitoba, Newfoundland, and Quebec, all three of which had separate publicly funded uh, religious schools and over the last number of years have uh, had those constitutional amendments. Uh, done through first the legislature in their province and then approved by the House of Commons. And none of them had any issues passing those amendments. So we can definitely get this done. The next thing, the next thorny issue is a motivated voting block of Catholics in this province who will be dead set against you becoming leader. And if you manage to do that, will be absolutely dead set against you ever forming government. Well, like I said earlier, Alan, it's not an attack on the Catholic system at all. I'm trying to take the best out of that system and make it available for everyone else as well, right? So students who want a religious education, want a Catholic education in high school, can take that as an elective. But we're not going to mandate that for everybody. And what we're going to do is we're going to pull all the resources available in terms of all the education dollars that we spend into the classroom. So there's a study uh, that came out a few years ago that talked about $1.6 billion in savings. And when you're comparing that to a Ford government right now that is cutting left, right, and center and making class sizes larger, what we're going to do with that $1.6 billion is reinvest it in the classroom. Make sure we keep our class sizes small. Make sure we have resources for teachers. Make sure we have classes available for STEM and the arts and, and for that and everything else that we need for that, right? We need more resources, not fewer. And this is about spending Ontario education dollars in the best way possible. Alvin Tejo is a candidate for the Ontario Liberal Leadership the convention to choose the new leader will be held in Mississauga on March 6th and 7th of next year. Alvin, thanks so much for being on the program. Thanks so much, Alan. The country was horrified by the stabbing death of 14-year-old Devon Brackey Selvey outside Sir Winston Churchill Secondary School on October 7th. 
Two teenagers are charged with his murder. The family say the boy was bullied at school. And three teenagers facing charges in a sexual assault scandal at St. Michael's College School last year have pleaded guilty. The teens, who are 15 and 16 years old, pleaded guilty to sexual assault with a weapon and assault with a weapon. In November of last year, six boys were charged in connection with the alleged sexual assault of a student at that all-boys private school. And according to a survey conducted by Mission Research for CBC News, more than one-third of students between the ages of 14 and 21 say they were physically assaulted at least once before reaching high school. Boys are even more likely to face violence. Four in ten boys between the ages of 14 and 21 reported they were on the receiving end of an assault. I know this firsthand. In grade 7 and grade 8, I went to school with terror every day. The threat of violence was very real. It happened more than once. And my experience is not unique. I carry it with me to this day. And it impacts so many things in my life somehow unseen. Sabrina Gafar Siddiqui is a sociologist and researcher at McMaster University and joins me on the line. Hi, Sabrina. Hi, Alan. What does the research tell us about this kind of experience for young boys and what it does to the rest of their lives? So, Alan, of course, when I see research like this, my initial response is, okay, great, I'm glad we're getting more numbers out there. And surveys can be excellent because a lot of times children or anyone really would be more likely to respond to questions on a survey than they would in a face-to-face interview. But what I worry about is that, you know, while this um, research actually gives us numbers like, you know, four in ten boys are more more likely uh, to experience violence, it doesn't really give us details in terms of, you know, why this happens, how it affects people. And that's why qualitative research really kind of like helps us. Um, I actually conducted some research just a couple of years ago with high school students, and that was with racialized um, high school students. And I can tell you, Alan, the the kind of stories I heard were, were disturbing, very, very graphic. And and, and bearing that in mind, I worry that, you know, once we have children who are on the intersection, so, you know, when we have people from marginalized communities, minorities, um, you know, from uh, other minority communities like the LGBTQ plus community, I feel like these numbers are much higher. Um, and, you know, we would find out uh, by doing that kind of research that the problem is actually worse than we even think right now. Sabrina, you know, it's been a number of years, and I won't tell you exactly how many since I was in grade 7 and grade 8. And now, as a parent of children going through the school system, I had hoped, I had hoped that things were different. And all of the talk and all of the pink shirts and the bully benches and the friendship corners and so on and so forth. And it doesn't seem to have added up to much of anything. Yeah, I mean, I agree with you. Um, I think just to kind of shed light a little bit on that, I think what the problem with this whole, like, anti-bullying campaign is that um, what's happened is that we have uh, defined bullying as something that's ongoing. So a child who has a one-off incident 
uh, where, you know, he's been beaten up, he might not think that that actually is defined as bullying. So wouldn't report it. Oh, it's just one off. That that doesn't mean that it didn't affect him, that it's not an important, you know, number for us to have. I feel like the results are skewed by these one-off incidents that are that have grave effects on an individual. But, you know, because of this, a campaign that makes it a little bit uh, sometimes more vague and sometimes you know children will think that they they aren't included in that category somehow i think that us as parents and as adults in the room i think you know obviously our intentions are good but we seem to be talking at the kids and talking to each other and not solving the issue at all yeah i i agree with you i think uh Part of the problem is that, you know, I hate to bring this up, but funding is a huge thing. You know, schools don't have the funding required to have people in place who are there to talk to children. You know, bringing in a speaker and talking about bullying as this bigger problem and, you know, like you said, having pink shirts and all of that is not really going to solve the problem on the ground when someone is in the midst of a, uh, you know, a bullying kind of cycle that they're in. Um, And I can tell you as a parent myself that, you know, there have been incidences where, you know, my child has kind of been involved in something where, where they have been bullied or, you know, one-off incidents. And the school hasn't actually been able to help because there's no one there to listen. There's no one there to actually solve the problem. And, and you know, kids don't really want to go to their school principal or their vice principal. This whole snitch factor is obviously an issue. But also, you know, principals and vice principals aren't always, um, you know, they don't have the tools to, they're not psychiatrists or uh, you know, social workers or people who can help the child on a long-term basis. Sabrina Gafar Siddiqui is with McMaster University. Sobering numbers, and obviously we are no closer to solving or even really getting a handle on this problem. I appreciate you being on the program. Thank you for having me. Welcome back to the program. Just ch- uh, is popping up in the old email right now is a notice of a press conference. The Minister of Education, Stephen Lecce, will hold a media availability at 1.30 this afternoon at the Queen's Park Media Studio. When the, these things pop up kind of unexpectedly like this, it often is news. So we'll keep an eye on that. Once again, the Minister of Education holding a media availability just announced now. He'll be speaking in an hour's time. That may be an update on ongoing negotiations, especially with ETFO and OSSTF. We may actually get some news in terms of strike mandates and so on and so forth. Stay with us for more on that. The Canadian Pediatric Society says general pediatricians, not just psychiatrists and developmental pediatricians, should assess and diagnose autism spectrum disorder. The number of cases across this country continues to increase. Lindsay Roberts agrees with that. She had to homeschool her five-year-old son because he could start hitting people, screaming, suddenly run away if he happened to be in a classroom. She says he's showing signs of autism but can't go to school because he doesn't have a diagnosis. She says he's already waited more than a year for that assessment. Most families, from the time they start looking into an assessment, 
to when they actually get it, wait at least 18 months. My little guy couldn't start kindergarten because he can't access support without a diagnosis. He can't go into a classroom without support. And the system doesn't offer support until the child is suspended many times or expelled. And that is a problem for so many families who realize that their child may be on the spectrum, but as they wait for that assessment, they can't get the help, they can't get the supports that they need. So the Pediatric Society is saying now that general pediatricians should be able to diagnose the spectrum. And this number is incredible. I had no idea. One in 66 children between the ages of 5 and 17 are diagnosed with autism. That is according to the Canadian Pediatric Society. And boys are diagnosed four times as often as girls. One in 66. To Disneyland. A person who was infectious with measles visited Disneyland last week. And that is leading public health officials to warn that hundreds of people at the theme park were possibly exposed to the highly contagious disease. Now, measles was actually declared eliminated from the United States in 2000, but it's returned with a vengeance this year. 1,200 individual cases have been confirmed, though no other measles cases have yet been linked to last week's visit to the Magic Kingdom. Places that have a high volume of visitors like Disneyland strike a special fear among public health officials. And with good reason, too, because Disneyland was the site of a major measles outbreak in 2014-2015 that actually led California to strengthen its law requiring vaccination and blocking parents from opting out based on personal beliefs. And you know that is an issue here in Ontario as well with the Medical Officer of Health from Toronto urging the province to change the rules. The rules are currently that as a parent, you can opt out for your children. You can have them not get their vaccinations because of religious reasons as long as you go to a course and watch a video. That's your requirement. And health officials say that is not enough. To Arkansas next. And I'm wondering... Vegans and vegetarians out there, what you have to say about this following story. An Arkansas hunter is dead after being attacked by the deer he just shot. Arkansas Game and Fish Commission's Keith Stevens says 66-year-old Thomas Alexander had taken down a buck and thought it was dead when he approached it. It got back up and um, he had several puncture wounds on his body. Alexander called for help but died at the hospital. Stephen says in his years with the Game and Fish Commission, he's learned a few lessons, including if you shoot an animal, give it some time before you go check to see if you actually killed it. You know, be really careful around it uh, because uh, it may not be dead. Jerry Preston, ABC News. It might not be dead. Zombie deer. I am joined by a couple of vegans. Jackie, I'm my producer, and Rob, who is on the board. Your resident vegans in the in the building, yes. This is, this is when I, yeah. I go to the vegans every once in a while. Wait, did you have a vegan curry last night for dinner? You told me. Let's not. That get makes into you that. vegan. Now. You're <laughs> with <laughs> us. Join us. I made it with chicken stock, so suck on that. Uh, what do you make of this story? Uh, keeping in mind that what happened to the uh, hunter at the end of the day, not good. But at the same time, you must. Are you gloating a little? No, I mean you feel bad for the guy. 
obviously. Yeah, I don't, I don't think you ever want to, you know, be happy that somebody died. Somebody died, right? That's somebody's father, brother, whatever it is. But <laughs> karma. Well, it was his fault, yeah. I'm still about, like, uh, you know, I like it when the animals fight back. <laughs> but no, it's not. It's sad. Yeah, like I think to myself, you know, the world outrage you see every time, you know, there's a picture of a guy, you know, who's killed a big game trophy over in, in you know, in Africa. And then people think, well, it, wouldn't it be justice if the, you know, elephant just crushed him? Yeah. And that, it's that kind of sort of thing. It's, exactly. It's, it's, it's okay. This Did even really might be. to kill that deer? Yeah, right? But this, this might even be going too far, but it's kind of bittersweet. Bittersweet. Just like venison. (laughs) 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 Thank you, vegans. Appreciate that. Welcome back to the program, and happy birthday to Drizzy. Drake celebrating a birthday today, October's very own. And when it comes to bigger and bigger and bigger... There is nothing quite like Drake, who said, thank you very much for that championship ring, the biggest one ever handed out to an NBA championship. Uh, And thank you for all of the diamonds, more diamonds than any other championship ring ever. I need to build my own ring and make my own ring that's going to be even better than that. Because in 2019, excess is success. And that's cold. Speaking of cold, you can see a giant ice sculpture of Drake on Queen Street today. Why? It is to celebrate the launch of Complex Canada and Drake's birthday, of course. Derville Kelly is a senior vice president here at Chorus, coming in to talk about what is Complex Canada and why have we frozen Drake. Hi, Derville. Hi, Alan. Let's begin with the first one. Complex Canada. Yes, well, speaking of big, you talked about big. Complex Canada, for those of you who aren't familiar with it, is actually the biggest youth culture brand in the world today. In fact, many people say it's like the MTV of this young generation. And we, of course, are bringing Complex Canada uh, here to Canada and standing it up on social and bringing the program to global television. So on global television, you'll see some of the programming, and it is aimed for a particular youth market. Is that right? Well, I would say it's aimed for anyone. The programming is pretty universal. On Global, we're airing Hot Ones, Mm -hmm. which, if you're not familiar with it, is a celebrity interview show where people progressively eat Hot Wings. Jeff, I think you tried that on air, maybe? Yeah, I'm hanging Uh, out (laughs) here, by the way. Good afternoon. We get Sean Evans, the host of the show, on with us on the morning show a couple of weeks ago. My mouth is still on fire. That's right. And you can see that online, by the way. Google that for just your enjoyment (laughs) and pleasure. (laughs) If, uh, yeah, my punishment is your pleasure, you'll love it. (laughs) And and so this is a way to, and like you say, you know, anybody can watch it, of course, but this is a way to to talk to a, a different market that maybe not be watching traditional television. Yeah, I mean, I think this is, we look at it as a digital first brand. On YouTube, uh, this brand gets more views than Netflix for men 18 to 34, and it's really big with women, too. They talk about sports, fashion, music, culture. Uh, And so we thought, what better way to launch this week but to celebrate culture, to celebrate Drake, uh, to celebrate the Raptors. And so we built a life-size statue made out of ice, Mm -hmm. uh, same size as Drake, it's six foot one, um, that will be at OD Toronto today if people want to come down, check it out, and get a photo. 
And, and that is at 273 Queen Street West. That's basically Queen and University area. That's right. And OD Toronto is uh, Toronto's number one consignment sneaker shop. Uh, sneakers is a really big part of complex, a really big part of uh, what we talk about. Uh, we have the show sneaker shopping in addition to hot ones on air on global as well. You can check that out on Friday nights. Now, do you understand shoes? Do you understand? I mean, I understand that you oh, understand uh, shoes. Do I understand shoes. <laughs> I, I know. I, I know. They're on your feet. Like, they help you walk. Yeah, yeah. Do you understand <laughs> buying sneakers and never wearing them? Are you stupid? You know, Are you dumb? It is a massive, massive thing. It's, it's the new status symbol, it isn't is it? It is the new status Without symbol. Without a doubt, it is. I don't. It's not your car anymore. It's not your suit. It's uh, whose shoes you're wearing. It's huge. And it's we. Our team's going down to ComplexCon, which is the cultural Super Bowl, really, for this whole uh, generation and around all of these verticals. It's in Long Beach uh, uh, in November, and thousands and thousands of people come through every single day. In fact, it's now one of the biggest contributors to Long Beach economy and it's again like people come for the shoes they come for the music they come for the fashion but sneaker culture is mainstream now it really is yeah. it's it's amazing stuff i want to talk a little bit about golf uh, dervla kelly is with us uh, senior vice president of marketing here at chorus and stay with us dervla because i know you're not a golfer but i want <laughs> i want a non-golfer uh, perspective to help me here because this is why jeff MacArthur is with us i'll tell you the story here to get us started the owners of the Glen Abbey Golf Course and the town of Oakville each winning a round on Wednesday in their fight over the proposed destruction and redevelopment of that property. In a decision, the Court of Appeal restored five bylaws that the town had passed that tried to thwart Clublink Corporation's plans. Clublink is who owns that golf course. The appeal court, however, invalidated the town's conservation plan as it relates to Glen Abbey and basically says you can't just force Clublink to keep operating this golf course against the company's will. The town of Oakville wants that course preserved. The owner, Clublink, wants to build over 3,000 residential units, including nine apartment buildings between nine and 12 stories in height. Now, keep in mind, that the future of golf is very much in question because there is pressure all across this nation on these very desirable bits of land. That is heresy to Jeff MacArthur, (laughs) (laughs) who believes that you have the right to golf instead of build housing. Why? Well, I mean, let's not get carried away here, uh, Mr. Carter. Uh, I will say that uh, whoever owns the property has the right to do with it uh, as they please and uh, as they choose, and they've got to go through, uh, you know, the zoning hearings and have, uh, you know, the zoning changed and all of the rest. Having said that, uh, Glen Abbey, and you're absolutely right, golf sadly is on the decline. Not as many people are playing it as in years past, and I think you can make a pretty convincing argument that we have too many golf courses. Uh, in this uh, country. They're shutting down. Really, across North America, they're shutting down at uh, record rates. Having said that, Glen Abbey is a special golf course. Uh, To start with, it uh, was designed and built by Jack Nicklaus. Perhaps you've heard of him. Uh, the greatest champion that uh, golf has ever seen with uh, 18 uh, majors. It has been the home of the Canadian Open numerous times. There has been so many uh, great uh, Canadian sporting moments, golf sporting moments, uh, on that golf course that, uh, you know, I think you can argue that it's, uh, if it isn't rapidly becoming, it already is a piece of history. All right, so if we don't talk about that particular course, because you make a good case that there is a piece of history there, there's a piece of heritage, and maybe that's why that needs to be preserved. But, Dervla, keep in mind that we We've had other 
political leaders say that we should change the way we do things. The future of publicly owned golf courses are up for debate. Former Vancouver Mayor Gregor Robertson and former Toronto City Planner and candidate for Mayor Jennifer Keysmat all recommended that we convert city-owned courses into parkland. When you see a city-owned course in this city, do you think, well, how come it is that golfers get to go there, but I should be able to go and walk my dog? Again, you might be talking to the wrong person, not being a golfer. Um, but I do think as the city is growing, and I think we see residential development everywhere and towers springing up across the city, like one of the things we want to think about if we want to be a world-class city moving forward is what about the green space? What about the parkland? You know, is this a city full of condos, or are we going to think about the long-term uh, prospects around what the city looks like and how people can enjoy it. You know, and I think that's another argument for keeping Glen Abbey because uh, does Oakville want to become like every other nondescript city right across uh, Canada and North America where, oh, here we go again, more high-rises, uh, more condos. Well, uh, what about because those public not... courses here in Toronto? Jeff, let me ask you that question okay. directly. Do you think that we should keep publicly owned golf courses in the city of Toronto or should they be green space for everybody? I think they can be both, uh, actually, because mm. golf... Four! Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> golf is green space, absolutely. But I mean, it's it's a green space for an elite few. See, this is what I uh, you know infuriates me about golf is we make golf elitist. It doesn't have to be, and I think the public golf courses are trying to bring golf to to everybody at an affordable uh, rate. So, uh, I mean, it's pretty hard to argue in this day and age when we've got so many other things facing us that uh, golf is a priority and that uh, you know our city government needs to uh, support uh, golfers. But you know, we make that argument all the time when it comes to basketball courts that we need those up uh, so kids can play. And golf is a sport that people love, that people enjoy, and uh, I don't want to start ranking, you know, is basketball more important than hockey or more important than golf, that they all have a place. I think that's a good point. As a parent of young kids, I can tell you how expensive sports have become. And Mm -hmm. I think if we can turn that into something that's affordable, that no matter what your economic status is, kids can learn how to play golf. I think that would be something to consider. Dorva Kelly is with Chorus, and Jeff MacArthur is with this radio station. With us. On, <laughs> is on next. Thank you so much for being on the program.